Hey there, Lisa here. So real quick before we start the show, if you've listened to the show before, then you've heard me tell you what an absolute honor it is, really an honor of a lifetime to create this space for my guests to share their stories. And I'm so moved every time they do and every time they tell me how meaningful it was and sometimes even healing to feel held in our conversation. Based on the number of downloads and notes I receive from listeners around the world, I'm guessing the show is making an impact in some of your lives, too. Yet, I know for a fact there are more grievers out there who are feeling maybe isolated and alone in their grief, whose grief journey might be made just a little bit easier by listening to this show. If you want to help them find the show, here's what I'm asking. After today's show with my guest, Kate Manser, head to Apple Podcasts, find the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, leave a rating, and write a review. The world of algorithms counts on that to get this show out to the people who might need it most. It had never occurred to me that I could die at that young age. And so the main emotion that I felt at that time after dealing with those three deaths was that I am no longer safe. Mm. I know that, that, you know, that sheet was pulled out from my eyes and suddenly I realized that I too could die at any moment. And so that sent me after these three deaths into a really harrowing year where I was just consumed with the anxiety that I could die at any moment. And it made it difficult to go to sleep because I was constantly having these visions of myself dying or my family members dying. Every time the phone rang, I thought it was again going to be bad news. Every time I got behind the wheel of the car, I thought it was going, I was either going to hit someone in the intersection or I was going to be T-boned in the intersection and that would be it again. You can see how it was just all the safety of my life had disappeared and sent me into that death anxiety. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. And through the show and my work at Reimagining Grief, I'm on a mission, a mission to change the narratives of grief, one conversation at a time. In today's episode, you're going to meet my inspiring new friend, Kate Manser, author of the book and the movement, You Might Die Tomorrow, Live for Today. And what you will quickly discover through our conversation is that this isn't just a flippant slogan or a catchy phrase aimed to shock. It comes from hard-won growth in response to the loss of four friends in the span of two years. Though her initial response was fear, anxiety, and retreating from the world, she discovered that the best way to honor them, to carry their memory forward— was to live each day fully and to encourage others to do the same. I can't wait for you two to meet. Hi, my name is Kate Manser. I am the founder and author of You Might Die Tomorrow, So Live Today, a movement and a book that is 
has the goal of inspiring people to really live before you die and to live with adventure, gratitude, and joy. And I invite you to join the movement, to get a free sticker on my website, to pick up the book at your favorite reseller. And if you forget everything that I've said, to make sure that you enjoy your life, because at the end of the day, we have no idea what will happen. And I believe that enjoying our life is the goodness that we can create in our heart that will wave on throughout humanity. Well, Kate, what an absolutely brilliant way to open this episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. It's my pleasure to, to be on the show and to make a new friend with you, Lisa. For the listeners don't know, we had a little pre-call a few weeks ago and we just got to gabbing. I felt like we could have talked <laughs> for hours. We share a lot of similar passions, obviously. We're, we're the two people who walk into a party and you know people are like, what do you do? Oh, I talk about grief and death all the time and life, you know. Yes. <laughs> yes, you know, but but we're the barrel of fun, right? We're, we're the ones that leave people when, when they walk away like, whoa, my whole perspective is totally, well, hopefully if we've done yes. it right, you know, the yeah. whole perspective and yeah. When I start conversations uh, or introduce myself, I say, but I am fun at a party and it is true. I think when you, and we're going to explore that today in our conversation, when you have an event in your life that so shifts your story and so shifts your focus from um, sort of the trivial to the, you know, very important. It really, if you do the work, it can really make life so full of joy and fun. And I think that's kind of um, the adventure that you've been on as you've created this work that you're doing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Having fun is, it sounds so stupid and silly, but I think as I'm sure you've seen in your work, Lisa, and talking with people at end of life, like that's all that matters is just enjoying ourselves, sharing our love, creating love and, you know, all those other, you know, material possessions and all of that stuff that we worry about and fret about in life. It just doesn't matter. No, it really, it really doesn't. So speaking of um, topics about how we get to the place where we're enjoying life, we often only do that once we've faced, um, you know, heartache and loss and tragedy. That's Those are the invitations often in life that allow us to do that. And I, for our listeners should know this by now, um, as we're into season two of the podcast, but I ask each of my guests this question, and I wanted to start our conversation today, Kate, by asking it of you. And that is inviting you to think back to what your earliest memory of grief is, and specifically thinking about how are the adults in your life modeling grief, either through their words or their actions, or the expressions or non-expression of emotions, and what do you think that actually taught you about your own first experience of grief growing up, either positively or negatively or both? Yes. Well, I think that I have a very clear story and a very clear memory that I'd love to share with the, with you and the audience. And that is when I was around somewhere between, I think, 10 and 12 years old, we, my family throughout my childhood, we had always gone on these annual Memorial Day camping trips with like a bunch of extended family and friends of theirs. And uh, my mom's brother's wife, um, his brother would, or her brother would always come along and he was this like very gregarious, you know, fun guy who loved interacting with the kids. His name was Norb. And I think when I was around, like I said, between 10 and 12, he was found dead. And the circumstances around his death were very questionable. He, they weren't sure if he had been murdered or if he had committed suicide. And I just remember very clearly that, you know, 
we had just gone on the camping trip shortly before and I had had such a great time hanging out with Norb and he was so real and so alive. And then, you know, my mom told us, told myself and my siblings that, that he had died but she didn't allow us to go to the funeral. And I was the oldest. And so I had really hoped that I would have been able to go to the funeral and, and, you know, mourn him and have that closure. And I, you know, I, I know, and I'm sure you've talked with this with so many of your guests, but I know that the parents are trying to protect us and trying to, you know, preserve that childhood innocence that we have. But I'll never forget that I just felt so like raw and open and that I didn't get closure because I was not allowed to go to that funeral. And, that really stuck with me and it um, made me into the type of person that I think all of us are at some point in our life, which is that we don't think about death and we pretend like it doesn't happen. And that's how I lived until I was um, about in my 30, in my early thirties, when I had this radical epiphany about life and death. And, And that really set the stage of you know, just death, death is not a thing. And, and I think that's how we're so often we're trained. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I I agree with you. I think so many people are probably nodding their head right now because that's the experience for so many of us, particularly growing up in the U.S., um, where parents have this idea that kids should should be shielded and that we should protect them. And they often then don't talk about it. And all that does is make us ill prepared to process our own emotions and also teach us a lot of really negative things like sadness and grief is, you know, shameful or bad or something to be avoided. So mm-hmm. um, I appreciate you sharing that with us. And so you learned sort of from your family that we don't talk about it and this isn't a topic for kids kind of sweep it under the rug. So yeah. I know you're going to share with us today. You in particular, though, all of us have a 100% of experiencing grief you know, multiple times in our life, you and your very young life have have experienced a series of losses that have been really close to home and have transformed, as you've shared already, your own heart, your own life, how you mm-hmm. spend your days. Can you tell, tell us a little bit um, about what that first loss was like and sort of walk us through a little bit of that story? Before you do, I want to just take a moment to say to our listeners and to you, one of my goals of this podcast and the work I do at Reimagining Grief is to start to normalize conversations about grief and to help us develop a language and a vocabulary so that we can remove all of the shame and guilt and crap, frankly, that gets in the way of the work of grief. And so while I love to invite people to talk about their stories and share it openly and honestly, I also recognize we live in a pretty voyeuristic culture um, that likes, you know, social media and reality TV shows. And so I only invite guests to share the details that you feel are important for you to share. This isn't about us being voyeurs. It's really about us becoming more practiced and comfortable talking about the beauty, the heartache, the everything, all the emotions um, that encompass our loss. So that's just the context I like to set. Yes. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, I think we're all in different processes and we remember things, right? And like we, our psyche has this profound ability to like black certain things out. And then as we age, I maybe potentially to the point where we're able to process them, we, we, these memories become uncovered. And so we're all these magical, wonderful works in process. And I appreciate that. Yeah. I think there's, we can learn a lot from that voyeuristic, but I love that you invite people that this is a community effort. This isn't a, let's look over the ledge at someone 
someone else's train wreck. This is something that we all go through and we all need to talk about together. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So what was that first experience after NORB that really shook you and started to bring you on this journey of learning about facing death and loss and savoring life? Well, I think, you know, like most teenagers, I thought I was invincible, right? Like you think that you're never going to get arrested for any petty crimes. You're never going to get in trouble. You're never going to die. And, you know, that's, it's sort of a beautiful part of being a teenager. But I think when you don't have that early education about the reality of mortality, it can that can become dangerous in a lot of ways. So I, you know, I went through my teens and through college and I never thought about death. I never, never crossed my mind. A couple of friends in high school died and I had short stints with grief that were very like, um, very profound for me, but I didn't, again, that didn't, that didn't cause me to think about my own mortality until I was 28 years old. And in the span of six months, three friends of mine died in just random unexpected tragedies. My boss at Google was, he died in, um, on vacation when he was cliff, he jumped off a cliff um, to show off to his friends. My um, husband's cousin died of a very aggressive cancer within six months from diagnosis to death. And then finally, my friend from college was walking across the road where she lived in Santa Barbara and was hit by a drunk driver. And so those three together. And the main thing that I noticed in that time, you know, dealing with the grief of these three people around my same age, certainly it was grief. It's, it's sadness that these beautiful, vibrant people's lives were over and mourning that. But even more so because I had been so in denial about my own mortality, because uh, largely because of my conditioning, it had never occurred to me that I could die at that young age. And so the main emotion that I felt at that time after dealing with those three deaths was that I am no longer safe. Mm. I know that, that, you know, that sheet was pulled out from my eyes and suddenly I realized that I too could die at any moment. And so that sent me after these three deaths into a really harrowing year where I was just consumed with the anxiety that I could die at any moment. And it made it difficult to go to sleep because I was constantly having these visions of myself dying or my family members dying. Every time the phone rang, I thought it was again going to be bad news. Every time I got behind the wheel of the car, I thought it was going, I was either going to hit someone in the intersection or I was going to be T-boned in the intersection and that would be it again. You can see how it was just all the safety of my life had disappeared and sent me into that death anxiety. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Kate Manser. First of all, thank you for being open and honest about the flood of emotions, particularly around the anxiety and the worry and the fear that comes out of facing usually just one loss, but certainly, of course, in your circumstances, facing three losses so close together of people that were not, you know, dying of old age. I really want to just like take a moment and pause and say thanks for sharing that. I think one of the things that we forget about loss, particularly around a death loss, is there are so many secondary losses that come from it. We often lose friends. We often lose our home. But one of the things that you named I think is really important is we lose often our sense of safety and security, uh, especially in circumstances like yours when 
they are accidents or tragedies or violent crimes, um, et cetera, that we have, that we lose that sense of safety. And that's so disorienting. And frankly, I think I'd be curious to know, it sort of gets in the way of our grieving the loss, the primary mm -hmm. loss, because we're so, our sort of animalistic instincts, our fight or flight sort of takes over and it's hard to sort of see the world and, and see your other emotions because it takes over. Was that your experience? Was that like fear was your dominating emotion and the rest kind of were to the side or tell me yes. a little bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it was just because the deep shock that I felt because I had never had the opportunity to talk about grief and die. even though I had experienced Norb dying at that young age, my, some of my grandparents died. I had these two losses, uh, you know, a, a girl in high school died of cancer and a friend of mine in high school actually committed suicide. I never like no one ever really talked to me about grief or that, you know, everyone is mortal and that it's natural to die. And so when I experienced these losses three in a row um, in 2014, it was su such a shock. And and you're right. Like when we're hit with that animalistic fight, flight or freeze response, a lot of it is like, we need time to process, yeah. you know, what, what just happened and what we're going to do. And I look back and think, man, if I had had even just a couple of conversations with a trusted adult or a friend to someone to just normalize death just yeah. a little bit, then maybe that shock wouldn't have been so harrowing and sent me into such a, you know, first time realization at 28 years old or like, oh, shoot, I am mortal. You know, like that yeah. was um, really, I, I just think back to, to that shock that overcame me and how it took me that whole year and more to process. And I think we all have this lifelong process of learning that we're mortal. And even when we kind of, we know cognitively that we're going to die, it's this whole process. And I think part of life is coming to terms with mortality. That's part of our growth. And I see that now because I've done a ton of work on meditating on mortality, writing my books and essays and, and talking to people about it. And so I am very passionate, as I know you are, Lisa, about talking to kids and, and, and adults as well yeah. that, hey, death is natural. We're going to die. And the most productive thing you can do is to start thinking about that and start living the life that you want to live um, because that in effect will reduce your fear of death as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that you've come to this place where you are so passionate and joyful about kind of savoring and live for today, live today. So live today, I mm -hmm. think is your tagline, right? Um, and I, and I want to talk about kind of how you got there, because my sense is that, you know, you mentioned shock, which, of course, is sort of one of our earliest reactions in a state of grief. And it's there for a very good reason. It's not a bad thing. I think it gets a bad rap sometimes. Mm -hmm. But shock is, you know, the cushion that allows us to not have to absorb everything all at once. You know, that's it's a it's a great sort of survival instinct for us. But to get to the place where you are now, where you're sort of comfortable with your own mortality, talking about it with others, seeing and savoring the joy of life, how can you walk us through how you navigated that time of anxiety and began to sort of start to understand the sort of full spectrums of the emotions of your grief and kind of did that 
Yeah. So, I mean, now just as a sidebar, I realize that there's in a kind of a simplistic way, there's three main ways that we respond to the reality of our mortality. And I think it's similar to the way we respond to grief, but grief is so complex. Um, but the way, three main ways that we respond to the realization that yes, we are going to die is with um, anxiety, which is re- totally the way that I responded in that year was just, you know, I had total anxiety that death was going to come get me at any moment. Um, the second way is with apathy right? To take that nihilistic attitude of, you know, I'm going to die, so nothing really matters. Um, And then the third way that we often respond to the reality of our mortalities with action. And, um, and that was finally where I was able to get. So I went through that year of death anxiety where I wasn't sleeping. I was eating too much. I was drinking too much. I was constantly aware of my mortality and that it was potentially hiding around every corner and could come get me at any moment. And so I expended a ton of energy trying to avoid that, right? Like I wouldn't drive as much. I would, you know, try to, um, just wouldn't take any risks. I didn't want to travel because the plane would crash. Like I really just, my, my, my whole world became very myopic and I wish I could say that I successfully processed it over time, but actually it was an external circumstance that popped me out of that death anxiety. And what happened was about a year after I had been going through that, um, that really that terror of death, a fourth friend of mine was climbing Mount Everest and he died when the Nepal earthquake struck and mm-hmm. an avalanche was triggered and, and he was killed up on the mountain. And, you know, here I am after three deaths and then a year goes by in death anxiety, another person around my same age dies. And at first I was just so angry, right? Because mm. he, my other friends, you know, they suffered these freak accidents. And then here was my friend Dan and he had electively climbed arguably the most dangerous mountain in the world, right? And he was this vibrant person that I looked up to, that I wanted to be like. And in here, he decided to, you know, do something that was totally out of choice. And at first I was angry. Uh, But then Mm -hmm. I realized that climbing Mount Everest is not something you just do on a random Saturday. He had (laughs) expended tons of time, energy, financial resources, physical resources. And that as I, you know, literally the day that I find out that I found out that he died, I'm processing all of this in, in my bedroom, first that anger, and then, you know, seeing the light of, he knew that he could die going up that mountain. He was fully aware of the risks. You know, you can't do something like climb Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, without being fully aware that you may not come back down. Of course, I know he didn't want to uh, for that to happen. And so when I realized and I saw my idol bravely living his truth with full awareness of the risk of climbing and and fulfilling his dream. And then I looked at that in comparison to my small, scared life that I had been living that year prior in that death anxiety. I realized how absurd it was that I was expending all of my energy in life avoiding death when I could die climbing Mount Everest or you know what, I'm a pretty klutzy person. I could probably die climbing the stairs, but that is largely outside of my control. And so that was the moment for me that I realized that, you know, I can live in fear or I can understand that when, where, and how I die is largely out of my control. But what is inside my control is how I live until that mystery moment comes. When we come back, Kate shares how she moved from that realization into action. 
I think it can be easy to believe that only some people are capable of big monumental shifts, or that it all happens at once. But my experience is that just isn't true. We're all capable of growing. In fact, we're always changing and evolving, even in this very moment. And yes, sometimes it comes from having big aha moments or making big declarative statements. But the growth itself is more often than not subtle. It's little by little, inch by inch, hour by hour, day by day. So I invited Kate to share how she evolved from being that person who was frozen in fear to being the person who is constantly reminding all of us that we might die tomorrow, so we should live fully today. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. That's a really profound aha moment, as Oprah Winfrey would yes. say. Um, t- tell me, like, what, like, what happened that day? What happened that next day? Like, how did that? Did you sit on it? Did it simmer? What was the evolution of that? Um, mm-hmm. As you kind of then moved forward, and I'm still curious to know, kind of, how the emotional work that needed to be done over all those losses kind of got done while you were sort of after the spark, after the aha moment. Yeah. Well, what I realized that day was that I had been living and and I didn't come up with the idea for the title of my movement, You Might Die Tomorrow, So Live Today. That day, it happened a few weeks later as this had was sort of marinating within my consciousness. And But that was the day that I realized that thinking about death can actually be inspiration and motivation to live your best life as opposed to something to live in total fear of. And that was what I resolved that day was I looked at my friend, Dan, who was this adventurer. I looked at my friend, Steven, who my boss at Google, who he was also a triathlete, this vibrant guy, my friend Mallory, who in Santa Barbara got hit by the drunk driver. She was like this super funny person living her truth. Even Yvonne, my ex-husband's cousin, he was a musician, a bassist. And I saw all of these people who had died just living their vibrant lives. And I realized that um, I didn't want to waste the time that I had. And I realized that I could die at any moment and that um, it's up to me to choose how I spend that time. And so I think the way that I processed the grief of losing those friends was to live my most vibrant life. And so again, I took, instead of living in that responding to mortality with fear and anxiety, I flipped to responding to the idea of mortality with action. So that was the first, the first thing. And I ended up, you know, I had been meaning to visit my friend who lives on her boat in Tahiti. She had been inviting me to come stay with her for a couple of years. I said, you know what, after he died, I was, I'm going to go. So I went down to Tahiti where there I had another realization that I can live whatever life I choose. I, and that led to me realizing that I had always wanted to travel. Um, and so I ultimately decided to quit my job at Google and travel around the world because I might die tomorrow and I didn't want to wait until retirement when either I don't make it to retirement or I might have a bad back at that time. I wanted to travel then. And so it led to not only a bunch of really big decisions in my life to live my most vibrant expression of life 
um, it also caused me to come up with this idea for you might die tomorrow. So live today being a motivational slogan uh, and, and a movement instead of um, some, the most scary thing that I had encountered. And um, it also caused me to meditate on the idea of my mortality, which I had never done. So aside from these kind of big changes, right, like quitting my job and going on a trip and and the idea for writing a book and starting a movement, on a micro level, I started to really think about my mortality on a daily basis, not with fear, but with like this gentle curiosity. And Mm -hmm. I began to notice endings in my life. And I began to notice when people died. And instead of, you know, being in denial of it, I would reach out to the person who is grieving. So just these small micro um, ways to become more comfortable with the idea of death and incorporate into my life. And, And all of that just radically changed my life where I felt, I felt that I was finally living. Hmm. Well, I'm sure our listeners right now are getting inspired and thinking about how they can sort of shift their thinking in their own lives as they face different losses and grief. And kind of what you're saying is resonating for me around um, our ability to first recognize the stories that we're telling in our head and then choose to make shifts in kind of how we story our lives and story the experiences Mm -hmm. of our lives. And it sounds sort of like what you're doing. I often describe grief as um, in this sort of like using this story metaphor, which is our lives are built by, and our identities are built by millions of experiences that we have in our lives. But it's the stories we tell of those experiences that begin to shape our identity and our sense of our life. And when a death or a loss for you happened for, you know, within two years, or even a traumatic event happens in our lives, it's akin to the manuscript of your life being shredded and gutted and then handed back to you with no instructions on how to rewrite or live your life. And so often the work of grief I sort of think about is looking at the story, looking what has been before, and then figuring out a way to continue to edit and write and rewrite the story of your life. And that really allows you in some ways, some opportunities to make shifts like you did, which is I can either think about and reflect on these deaths and the presence of those people in my life as sorrowful and tragedy, you know, this can turn in sort of a tragedy, or I can think about the gift that they were and how living my life carries their memories forward as an example of one, as an example of one way of rewriting your story. And that's sort of sounds like what you're doing. Not, not, I mean, you literally wrote a story, you literally wrote a book, but even in terms of your own emotional work, does that yes. sort of resonate for you? Yeah. Oh yes, absolutely. Oh my goodness, Lisa. I always say that perspective is a hell of a drug. And one of the things that I love about a, mass- a massive perspective shift in my life is that it humbles me because when you look at something one way for so long, and then you suddenly are able to open your mind to looking at it in a completely different way, which is, you know, one could describe what happened to me is looking at death is scary. Death is coming to get me at every moment. And then I totally changed to the other side, which is death is out there and I have no control over it, but I'm going to use it as motivation to live my best and most authentic expression of life. That is so humbling because you have to look at something in a completely different way. And it makes me, and I love that you talked about that shredding the manuscript. What a beautiful metaphor. It makes me think of the ideas of, you know, PTSD and um, Mm -hmm. post-traumatic growth, right? Like the, I think the definition of post-traumatic growth is, 
you know, you go through a tragic experience and then you reassimilate and you have a totally different worldview as a result of that. And that's really just fancy words for a total shift in perspective. And it takes a lot of humbling and a lot of work to get to that point. And it's, you know, PTSD and PTG are not mutually exclusive. Like almost always you're going to go through that PTSD in order to get to that post-traumatic growth. And, and that one could use those, you know, clinical um, descriptions to look at what I went through, which was that year that I was in that death anxiety. I was really mm. suffering from that post-traumatic stress. Like I couldn't, I couldn't reassimilate my life in a healthy way. And then finally I was able to see things from a totally new perspective. And, um, you know, I look at it as a spiritual awakening. You could call it an epiphany, a shift in perspective, you know, a new, a new place of growth. But I think that we're all going to experience tragedy in life at some time or another. A hundred percent guaranteed. We're not yes. getting out of this. We're not getting out of this world without it at least yes. once. Yes. And so I think that that perspective that, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, the famous Buddhist um, spiritual leader, you know, he speaks so beautifully and eloquently, no mud, no lotus, that we have to go through the mud and the hard and the, and we all want to get to that white lotus. We all want to get to that white lotus right. truth, but we can't forget that it takes a lot of mud to get there. And so I don't regret the fact that I quote unquote wasted a year in death anxiety no. because yeah. I would have never had such a profound shift if, if that year wouldn't have been so harrowing. I absolutely love that. And I think what you're talking about too is hard to, for us to do, particularly in this country, is we look at that time, that pain, that time of pain, that time of fear, that time of anxiety as quote unquote waste, because we live in a country here in the US anyways, I know we have listeners around the world that are so productivity obsessed. We are so fix it obsessed. And we think that any emotional expression that isn't happy must have a, you know, five tips to, or top 10 mm -hmm. ways to, you know, solution. And if you're not getting over it quickly, and if you're not following this protocol, then there's something wrong. And what you're saying and reminding us of, and this is what I speak often on this program is it's actually the work that we do of journeying through that and facing that and feeling our emotions fully and inviting those emotions in as visitors over for a cup of coffee, as I often use that <laughs> metaphor. Um, and hearing what they have to say and kind of learning from them, that's the, that's the juice, that's the magic, really. You know, that's what allows us to um, rewrite and reshape and find resiliency and growth um, and be able to not move on or leave behind those people, but to integrate and carry forward those experiences yes. and those people and that, in a way, is just like the biggest gift that we can give to those that we lose is that we're incorporating not just their death into our life, but that they're, we're incorporating their life into mm -hmm. our life. Mm -hmm. um, so I love that you're reminding us that this work that we do, this, this sitting in our pain or this exploring our emotions is absolutely um, important because I can imagine some people who are hearing your slogan are thinking, oh, well, that's easy to say. You can't just turn off your emotions and be happy. But what you're reminding us of is you can only get there if you do the work of sitting with and exploring your emotions. And it is possible, but you don't get to just check off a top five list and jump straight ahead to that place. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. You got to yeah. do that work. 
Can you tell us a little bit about, you kind of talked about the big shifts that happened that sort of transformed you, you know, like quitting the job and the, um, you know, traveling to Tahiti and traveling around the world. What, what, what do the smaller moments look like that reflect this shift in perspective for you? How do you, how would you give us insight into your life in terms of how it's changed maybe your everyday practices or the way you approach conversations with people, kind of the smaller, more intimate ways you've transformed? Oh, yes. What a great question, Lisa. Thank you. So yeah, I went on this big trip. I ended up, I was going to travel the world for a year, ended up, I was able to find a job while I was uh, like a remote job. I was able to work uh, while I was on the road and travel for two years. And it was everything that you wanted to be. And I will certainly write a book about the wonderful and amazing, you know, adventures and mishaps and love affairs and all of that, that I experienced for those two years on the road. But what happened was that I learned my biggest lesson when I got back. So after two years, I basically ran out of money, came back to Austin, got another office job in marketing like I had had um, before I before I left and got an apartment and, you know, all the normal things, car, all that. And, you know, I had to go back to regular life and you'd think that I would have with all the lessons that I had learned about life and, and everything, both in my epiphanies as well as my time traveling that I would have just assimilated and everything would have been great. But no, I was totally human and I began to just feel saddled with worries about the future, worries about money, worries about all of these things. And I was just starting to live my normal life, but I, I hadn't assimilated the lessons that I had learned until one day I had another realization. And that was, I was just walking around my neighborhood one day with my dog, as I did almost every single day. And uh, on this particular day, I began to notice the trees around me. And as I noticed the trees, I, I had this really kind of spiritual moment where I, I didn't just look at the tree. I really noticed the tree. I listened to the sound of the leaves rustling. I looked at the way that the roots met the earth and then it stretched up to the sky. I felt like I could smell the tree. I was really engaged with all my senses. And I, and I began to notice all the trees in my neighborhood on that walk. And that lasted for three days on the walk. I was just entranced by the magic of this everyday thing. And that was one experience that led me to realize that quitting a job is great. Traveling is great. Starting a business is great. Having a kid, like these really big, like life milestones that we go through that um, we look at as these big moments, like they're awesome. And I am very much a proponent for taking calculated risk and making big choices in life that you'll remember later on. But what I realized, what this tree experience taught me and what coming back to quote unquote regular life after my trip taught me was that my real lesson in life is is not how to live like I might die tomorrow while I'm in Japan. It's how to live like I might die tomorrow on an average day when I'm walking my dog, unloading the dishwasher and having my normal average cup of coffee on my porch in the morning. And that was really the moment that I learned that living like you might die tomorrow and the, actually the great, not even living like we might die tomorrow, but the greatest quantity of joyful moments in our life are not going to be those big risky choices. They're going to be the everyday moments that we just sit down and we sit back and we reflect and we feel grateful for the experience of being alive. (laughs) 
you are so spot on. Exactly. Of course, we remember, you know, the weddings and the births and all those things, but it's the, I mean, I've experienced this over, it's almost nine years since my husband died and about five years since my friend Joe died. Mm. And yes, of course, I think about, you know, trips that we took around the world or, you know, my husband and I used to go scuba diving together and I can picture those kind of awesome moments, but it's definitely little moments when I was sort of able to be present. And so I think, and and they're not the big celebratory moments that are the ones that I savor, nor are they the necessarily the ones that I miss the most when, um, when grief is a Mm -hmm. sneaky bitch and, you know, comes up and um, gets me. So I think that's a really important practice. And you said part of how you're doing that in your life is meditating. And I do think the tree metaphor is one that's been a has been a favorite one of mine. I lead guided meditations often in my work. And one of them is a grounding exercise that sort of invites invites us to visualize our body as a tree rooting into the earth and sort of connecting across Mm. to all all those who have come before us and all those who will come. And um, I think those practices for folks, um, when I do my one-on-one grief coaching even, I do that work because I think loss and um, death can make us feel very um, alone and separate and isolated. And as you said, fearful. And I think um, part of the sort of tragedy of that is we miss seeing our shared humanity. We miss seeing our interconnectedness to one another. And we miss kind of the presence of this moment and sort of what's right before us. We start to see the word world myopically you know, as sort of deficit based and isolated. And what you just reminded us um, is that there are small ways and small actions we can take um, that allow us to kind of connect um, with gratitude and to connect with life. Yes. Yes. And I will say that, and you may have had the same experience, Lisa, but this, my living my life according to the mantra of you might die tomorrow. So live today uh, and having these experiences of loss and, you know, the transformative growth that I've experienced through that. I've never, I never had those moments where I could stand in front of a tree and just feel so profoundly alive. Or, I mean, this happens to me now, like a few times a week where I'm just walking and I'll stop on the sidewalk and just gaze up at the sky and I'll just be so overcome. Like I'll start crying sometimes. And, and I don't know why I'm experiencing that now. And I never did before. And I'm sure there's a lot of reasons, but I think one of the reasons is that we are, I'm a procrastinator. I can't speak for you or for anybody Uh, in the audience, but like 150%, I put things off. And if something doesn't have like a specific deadline, like it's one of those things, like I'll get to it eventually. And so, So I think living as if you might die tomorrow, it puts a deadline on life. And when something is in potentially short supply, like time or life or suddenly raspberries are, you can't get them at the grocery store, the value goes up. And so living as if you might die tomorrow, it makes the small moments just skyrocket in value. And it makes that one sunset not just be, oh, whatever, a sunset. It could be the last sunset that you experience. And so you you drop your worries about the past. You drop your worries about the future. And you just really are present in that moment because there is no potential tomorrow. And yesterday is gone. And so living my life with this limited time offer, this deadline of, you know, I like cognitively, I know probably I will not die tomorrow, but living with that understanding that, yes, this could be the last time I hug my mom. This could be the last sunset that I see it. Number one, 
um, causes that value to go up. And then number two, it helps me understand what is important to me in my life. Because, you know, as Steve Jobs said, when we live, when we are on our deathbed, all of the expectations, worries, and pride, they all fall away. And we're left with what I call, you know, the cream of life. That's what rises to the top when you look at life through the lens of mortality. And, um, and so that's, I've never found a way in my life to live more presently, to live with more urgency, to figure out what in the heck really does matter to me than living life as if I might die tomorrow. And so that's why I created this movement is to help people see the sunny side of death, to help give clarity to what's important to us and to inspire people not to be the procrastinators that we inherently are and to have fun every single day starting today. Absolutely. Um, You know, I appreciate that sentiment so much. And it reminds me because we live, we often, I'll throw myself under the bus. I find myself saying this often as a solo entrepreneur and single mom. And, but we say this, so many of us in our country, which is, I have so much to do. I have too much to do. And taking that lens allows us to sort of sift through the junk and think about like, if this is the day what are the things that I want yeah. to do? Or, or my mom often reminds me when I'm, I'm listing my list of things I have to do um, as just a quick turn of phrase and say, what do I get to do today? Wow. You know, and I think that's a real shift. And again, I think I'm sure there are wonderful people out there who've been able to f- navigate this learning on their own without facing you know, tragedy or death or loss. But I think for so many of us, it isn't until we have that where we have the invitation to shift our perspective and think about what do I get to do today? And that's a, that's a gift. Oh, yes. And I look at people, myself included, you know, I went through several experiences of loss early in my life. And, you know, you go through that period where after someone dies, everyone says, oh, hug the person, hug your loved ones tonight. But that seems to just fade. And then people go back to the slog of life where we get worried about insignificant things. And so I think that living your life you know, in that lens of what do we get to do? You woke up today, what a gift. You could die tomorrow. These are ways to take that really pure, uh, you know, like I can't even find the words to describe that that experience that so many of us have after someone dies where we just, mm-hmm. we suddenly see so clearly what's important and we we treasure the things that we love in our life. It allows us to take that and, and thread it through our entire life as opposed to a temporary glimpse of clarity after someone that we care about dies. And, um, and if that's the most clear vision that we have, why not find a way to thread that through your whole life experience? You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Kate Manser. When we come back, I invited Kate to share how she's bringing Dan and her other friends along with her as she rewrites the manuscript of her life, as she embraces each day as if she might die tomorrow. Again, I asked her to share not necessarily the big grand gestures, though those are lovely for sure, but how is she doing it in the small everyday ways, in the actions she takes each and every day. One of the many things my conversation with Kate confirmed for me is that you do not have to choose between honoring your loss and living a joyful life. 
I think there is so much garbage in our culture, which has also seeped into our own self-talk, that somehow experiencing moments of joy, delight, or excitement is a betrayal of the people we loved who have died. For some of you, you may have let a smile shine through and then felt bad, guilty, maybe even embarrassed that you found something pleasing enough to smile, as if it is a betrayal of those you lost. I've been there too. I remember crying right after the first time I laughed out loud after my husband died. But what I've learned is that finding joy in life is the opposite of betrayal. It's a way to honor those who've died and appreciate the fact that we're still here, living, carrying their memory forward, just like Kate is, just like I am. I've intentionally created safe, supported, and educational services to meet you wherever you're at, including individual sessions, group-guided meditations, workshops, and seminars. I'd be honored to help you find meaningful and practical ways to incorporate space for your grief so that you can do that important, necessary, beautiful work of living more fully each day. You can learn more about these offerings and about why I do this work by visiting reimagininggrief.com. Well, after all of these years since they've they've died, I've been able to reflect and look at what each one of those people taught me. And Stephen was this kooky guy who um, just, you know, he was unapologetically himself. And so the lesson that I've learned from Stephen is just like, be yourself. And some people will like you, some people will hate you, but you just got to keep going. You know, what I learned from Mallory is that, you know, don't let people judge you. I had this experience where when Mallory was alive, you know, we were together in college and she got this great bachelor's degree. And then she kept working as a bartender, whereas I went and got a real job in marketing. And I used to look at Mallory like, I can't believe she's still a bartender after all these years. Well, that, you know, then she died and I realized, you know what, Mallory, and she had this huge like outpouring of support, you know, when she was in, in the hospital on life support. And I realized that she loved being a bartender. She loved meeting people. She had this close knit group of friends that cared for her and came through in her greatest moment of need. And like, that again, I caught, looked at my own self and was like, okay, great. I have this appropriate, societally appropriate job in marketing, but would I have that same outpouring of support? Mm. And so Mallory really taught me that just follow your bliss and who cares what the societal rules are. And then of course, you know, Dan climbing Mount Everest and he was this goofy, just vibrant person who cared about other people. You know, he forever instilled in me this this passion for adventure and that adventure can be something big like going on a big trip starting a business or it can be little things like having a difficult conversation with your mom or saying the hard thing or being the first to say I love you and really just living with your heart open and wide because as we've learned from Bronnie Ware's you know huge you know wildfire blog post the top five regrets of the dying we just want to be our real selves. And it's hard to figure out what our real selves are, but I feel that thinking about our mortality gives us clarity on that. And it also gives us the motivation to be that clear, authentic version of ourselves while we're still alive. Yeah. Oh, that's so powerful. Thanks for sharing the qualities of your friends and how you've integrated them into sort of 
helping you shift this perspective, you know, in your life. You just mentioned something about the difficult conversations, and I'd love to hear from you how you have changed your approach to um, having conversations, particularly kind of in your personal circle, whether it's with your mom or others, about what does a good life look like for them? And possibly even then, what does a good death look like for them? You know, I think of Atul Gawande and others who are inviting us to think about those choices. Have you started to have those conversations? And how how was that first time you did it? Was it sort of bumbly and mumbly? Mm -hmm. How? Yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so two years ago on New Year's, I had set the intention that I wanted 2019 to be the year of leader, right? Like I think a lot of us will choose a, a word for the year to right. kind of just keep in our pocket and that's what we're aspiring for. Well, 2019 was not the year of leader for me. I tried and I fumbled and, and all of these things. And so 2020, uh, my year was uh, was similar. It was it's to be the shifter. And it's really similar to being the leader but I think how that manifests in my life is, you know, my mom just had her birthday last Saturday and I asked her, you know, hey mom, what do you want to cultivate through the year? And she said, you know, I'd really like to be physically stronger. And so when I wrote her birthday card, I made sure to incorporate and wish her a year of strength. And I'll, I'll include that, you know, as I talk to her throughout the year. But it's also just really small things like, again, it's hard to be the first one to say that you love someone. It's, and it mm -hmm. is, it's vulnerable, right? But, but that's something that I strive for is to not hold back, to tell the person that you love them, even when you're in the middle of a fight with them or to tell the person, your friend that you love them after you've had a really deep, beautiful conversation, even if the love word hasn't been a part of the friendship vernacular before. And so, um, yeah, I think that being that leader, people and myself included are like, oh, leader. That means standing on a stage and talking to the people and yeah. having this huge wide impact. But I've come to learn, and as Mother Teresa said, when she won the Nobel Peace Prize, they asked her, Mother Teresa, how can we spread world peace? And she said, just go home and love your family. And what yeah. I've learned since in 2019, I made my word leader and it's, it's, it's extending now in 2020. I realized that being a leader can be being on a grand stage, but more often than not, it's being a leader in our everyday interactions and figuring out how we want to present in life. Like, do you want to be the adventurous one? Do you want to be the loving one? Do you want to be the thoughtful one? Like pick a word and, and yeah. let that word influence your micro interactions with your mom, with your dad, your family, your friends, the person who works at the counter at the corner store. And, yeah. um, and so, yeah, my main lesson has been that just like you said, Lisa, those small interactions and showing up there is the real magic and the real work. Absolutely. And I think it requires a few things, you know, just to reflect on what you just said. One is it, it requires us to pause and ask ourselves those questions first. Like, what is our word? What is the quality in which we want to proceed in this day, in this month, in this year? So first, we have to do that work for ourselves. And that's quiet internal work. That's internal reflective work. And then the next is, how do we then want to manifest that in our life? And yes, it can be in big, bold you know, declarative statements, especially in the word of, world of social media, I feel like you're always seeing people like this year, I'm gonna, you know, X, Y, and Z, and we make announcements. But the way that we actually begin to integrate it into the story of our lives into our manuscript is through those small moments of expressing your love or bringing up um, difficult conversations, 
or even how, as you said, you interact with people um, throughout your day, even people that you're not close to. And we have to be willing to do that in really fumbly and vulnerable and messy ways that might require us to go back and make apologies and amends. Um, but we're not going to really live into that um, way of being in the world unless we're willing to kind of stumble our way through it and mm-hmm. practice it sort of in every moment. Yes, exactly. And I think this is a great time to bring up a practice that I believe in very deeply. I use in my own life and I also teach to others, which is using the imagined deathbed as a tool for reflection in your life. And so I teach two things. Uh, They're both in my book, actually. Uh, One is the deathbed meditation, which is a 20-ish minute guided meditation that I lead that allows participants to, you know, in a, a very safe meditative space, imagine yourself on your deathbed and give yourself that gift of life reflection and reflect on your life. And then you come to the present moment and you reflect from the perspective of your deathbed when again, you know, expectations, pride, fear, all of those things are stripped away. You get to look at your life with clear eyes. And then you realize at the end of the meditation, you're not on your deathbed. You get more time. You have a chance to live like that and you can start now. So that's a guided meditation that I, that's on my in my book. It's on my website. I highly recommend. And then the everyday manifestation of that is I also use something called the deathbed gut check, which is when you are procrastinating or when you're stuck in decision paralysis or when you're trying to figure out what your words should be or whether you're trying to figure out which brand of peanut butter to purchase at the store, <laughs> you can um, use the five-second deathbed gut check, which is you for just five seconds, you can close your eyes, keep them open, but you imagine yourself on your deathbed looking over the decision that you're struggling with in your present day. And from that perspective of your deathbed, you imagine how you would feel looking back if you had chosen your option A. And then you observe how you feel in, the, in your gut. Do you feel a heaviness that you took the wrong path? Or do you feel a lightness that that was really the way that you should have gone in your heart, heart of hearts? And you can repeat that again with option B and C if you hadn't gotten the clear gut response on the first one. But for that is something I use, I mean, several times a week to cut through the noise of our present day life with all of its appointments and worries and family dramas and, and responsibilities to cut through to, hey, I'm going to look at my life from the perspective of my deathbed to get that clear perspective of what's, what does the true me want when I'm not, I don't have to worry about how much money I make or what people think of me. I absolutely love that. And I appreciate you sharing those practices with us. As we close out the show today, is there any other words of wisdom or questions or reflections that you want to share with us about um, your learning? You've, you've, you've given us so much already. Yeah, so I will share one bit of research by the great Dr. Irvin Yalom, who wrote one of my favorite books ever called Staring at the Sun. And he is a psychologist, I think he calls himself an existential psychologist, actually, where he helps people that are going through either grief or hard times look at their trauma and their difficulties from the perspective of like meaning and, you know, life and death Mm -hmm. and existentialism. And he's found in his decades and decades of research that the greatest antidote to the fear of death is the idea of rippling. And the idea of rippling is that though we may not think about it every day or in our everyday life, 
we're all through our micro and macro actions, creating ripples of influence that go to our families and to our friends and to our communities and even potentially around the world and through generations. And he has found that when someone is, is, going through a period of death anxiety, going through a period of grief, you know, worrying about their mortality, that the idea of rippling helps us realize that our lives have meaning. And so if any of you guys are going through a hard time, just recognize that the good that you put out in the world goes far beyond that which you'll ever imagine. And that the best way to create positive ripples, in my personal opinion, is to have fun every single day and enjoy your life. Mm, I love that. Well, what an inspirational and hopeful way to end our conversation today. Although I'm sure this will be the beginning of many for the two of us. But thank yes, you so much. So. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Grief is a sneaky bitch today. It was such a wonderful conversation. And we will be directing folks in our show notes to check out your book and your website and all the great goodness that you are creating with your movement. Thanks again, Kate, for coming. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate you. In honor of this beautiful conversation with Kate today, I'm going to close our show by reading one of my favorite poems on this invitation to embrace life. You may know it, and you may love it too. It's called The Summer Day by Mary Oliver. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? The Summer Day by Mary Oliver was first published in House of Light by Beacon Press in 1990. You should absolutely pick yourself up a copy of this collection. I want to thank Giles Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music again for today's show. Oh, and one more thing. It's a merch alert. If you love this show and you need some good work-from-home comfy tees, I've got you covered. The new Grief is a Sneaky Bitch tees are up for sale now at reimagininggrief.com. Thank you so much for listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefoffer, and until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.